This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we delve into somewhat treacherous and troubling territory as we explore the rise of the modern Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century. We examine some of the ways that elements of Protestant Christianity were taken and twisted into the creation of this hate movement. We talk with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her book, Gospel According to the Klan. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm very happy today to welcome back to our program Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's the editor of the journal Women in Higher Ed, and she's also managing editor of the journal Disability Acts. She has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Christian Century, The Washington Post, among many other publications. Earlier on Things Not Seen, we discussed her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays of Gender and Labor in Academia. And today we're going to be discussing another important book of hers called Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. Dr. Kelly J. Baker, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you so much for having me back. So there are many things to talk about in this book. It's both timeless and timely. And I have to say, having read through it, it is incredibly well written and it is meticulously researched. But in order to kind of get us into that discussion, I'd like to start with asking how it was that you came to be working on this particular research project of talking about the Ku Klux Klan. That's a good question. I grew up in rural North Florida, and I can vividly remember in high school a march that the Klan tried to have in a nearby town. So this is the late 90s, and what struck me about it was that there wasn't, like, strict condemnation, but it was more of it, like, white adults kind of wanted to avoid the whole situation, to just not talk about it and to kind of let it stand there. And when I got into graduate school, I was really interested in the way religious studies was particularly bad at handling groups that were white supremacist groups or even just the hate movement in general, because people kind of assume still that religion meant somehow good or progressive. And so these movements had no space in that, right? They just didn't have a place. And since they were so close to me because of where I was from, and I could see people were in them, and I could see that religion was a part of them, I decided that I wanted to tackle that to really think about how we tell American history, but also about how we think about religion more generally. And so this project really weaves together exactly that narrative, the Protestant Christian backbone, in many ways, of the Ku Klux Klan, how the Klan 
used religious symbolism and religious texts and turned it around for its own purposes, as you say, kind of away from that progressive message and more towards a message of exclusion. That's one of the things that you bring out, and also a message that many would consider to be a message of hate. Uh, In in looking at this, though, you, you mentioned a march that happened in the 1990s. What struck me also about the book is that when we talk about the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, we're really talking about three distinct organizations that existed in three distinct mm-hmm. periods. So there was the Klan, first of all, around the Reconstruction. There was the Klan that you deal with in the book from around 1915 to 1925. And then there's that more modern resurgence of the Klan. First of all, do I have that timeline correct? Yeah, I mean, I think there are more than three. <laughs> okay, tell me <laughs> so about The timeline that. is right. Um, but I think that the Klan kind of pops up in a variety of ways throughout the 20th century. Sometimes being more popular, sometimes being less popular. But I think those are the kind of major periods of activity that we see and that people are most familiar with, and particularly, too, around the civil rights movement, the 50s and 60s, too. And so you mentioned the civil rights movement. So one of the things that struck me in the book is that the Klan seems to be reactive, that the Klan rises and that it becomes reorganized every time that there is sort of a social movement for progress. So during the early phase with Nathan Bedford Forrest, it was with a reaction against Reconstruction. Then it was a reaction against, I guess, kind of waves of immigration in 1915 to 1925. And then you mentioned the civil rights movement. It definitely is reactive. And I think it's that kind of moment for white people, but white Protestants when we're talking about the 1920s Klan, where they're looking out at the social landscape, and it's kind of changed in front of them in a way that questions their dominance, cultural, political, social, and that the country is starting to look different than they imagine it should. And so it really kind of appears at these moments where it feels like we've made a great amount of progress right? And we could celebrate that. But almost immediately after you have this nervousness and this fear and this anxiety about what this means for the nation, but also what it means for individuals, like what is it going to do to their actual lives, right? And and how can they mobilize against these kind of changes to move stuff backwards? So you chose to frame your research into a 10-year period between 1915 and 1925. So first of all, why was that the period that stepped out to you, that stuck out to you? Part of it was source material. So I had newspapers, clan newspapers that they created and sent out nationally. And I wanted to kind of see what's happening in these documents compared to the way other historians of the Klan have kind of dismissed them as propaganda. So I wanted to see what Klansmen were saying about their order, what their language was, what their rhetoric was. And so part of it is that the newspapers I follow follow that decade. The other part of it is I could have gone on forever and written a gigantic book about the Klan from the Reconstruction to modern, but I didn't want to spend 20 years on something. (laughs) kind of selfishly, right? Um, So I had to limit that source material in some way. That makes good sense. So one of the ways that you frame this 10-year period is with two women. So there's Mary Fagan in 1915, or 1913, I guess, and then there's Madge Olberholzer in 1925. And if you could, just tell us briefly about both Mary Fagan and Madge Olberholzer and what their stories were. 
Yeah, so Mary Fagan was a young, white, Georgia factory girl who was found murdered in the factory where she worked. And it was blamed on her Jewish boss, Leo Frank. And I looked at this story because a lot of times this is a story about the origins of the Second Klan, where this really horrific act that happened to this young white woman convinced white men to mobilize together um, to protect white women, but also to lynch Leo Frank as a punishment, right, for daring to harm a young white woman, even though it's remarkably murky as to whether he was involved or not, and, um, and his trial was sort of a sham. So she's the first, right? So the kind of beginnings in this organization. And, and where someone like Joseph Simmons looks to this, he's the founder of the Second Klan, as a key moment in history, right? And a key plank for the Klan to follow. And then Madge Oberholzer was raped and then died due to the actions of a Klan leader, D.C. Stevenson. And this is important because it's the moment in which the Klan appears hypocritical, right? There's a Klan leader who has hurt a white woman, led to her death. And it's really a moment where ordinary white Protestant citizens who are involved in the movement start to really think about whether they want to be associated with a movement um, that's had this bad publicity but also doesn't live up to its standards. So they kind of are the bookends of how the Klan mobilizes, but how they could fall so quickly to you. And so it really is, a lot of what you're doing in the book is looking at a series of narratives. So, for example, Mary Fagan, the second wave of the Klan, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, actually gets organized out of an earlier movement called the Knights of Mary Fagan, who are there designed to protect the honor and the memory of this woman who supposedly was murdered by a Jewish person. And then when we look at that narrative, we're protecting white Southern womanhood. You you then very rightly point out that D.C. Stevenson, David Curtis Stevenson, the wizard of the Klan who kidnaps, rapes, and contributes to the death of this woman, Madge Oberholzer, that that is the narrative that undoes the second iteration of the Klan. Right. I'm really fascinated about how stories keep social movements together or drive them apart. So part of this is that I'm a historian and I nerd out on narrative, right? So that's a personal issue there. The other part of it for me is how people narrate these experiences that lead to mobilization, but also are able to grasp people under a mantle of hate and white supremacy. So what are the kind of stories that work, right, that appeal to millions of Americans in the 20s, white Americans in the 20s, and convince them to put on hoods and robes and burn crosses? And then what happens when those stories get tattered, right, or you start to pick them apart, or they no longer work in a certain way, right? And then how do these kinds of movements collapse? So I think it's a really interesting question about rhetoric and language and the way that stories are what we move through in our daily life, right? The kind of stories we tell about ourselves and what we participate in really motivate our actions in ways that are really fascinating that don't necessarily have to do with what's happening around us, right? Or what's happening on the ground, but they can pull people into this narrative. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. We talked to her on an earlier episode of the program about her book, Sexism Ed, Essays of Gender and Labor in Academia. Today, we're discussing her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America from 1915 to 1930. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. Well, there's a point early on in your book, Gospel According to the Klan, when you write, when the Klan's vision of Protestantism is placed at the front and center of an analysis, a different presentation of the order emerges that illuminates the dominance of the Klan's racial, religious, and intolerant views in America from the 1910s to the 1930s. And in our previous segment, you mentioned that the Klan in its newspaper, The Courier, was literally working out its theology in print. Help us to understand what that theology was. What is the theology of the Ku Klux Klan? Oh, it's such a good question, and it's um, it's a complicated theology. I think people assume sometimes with these um, hate groups that what they're doing is simple, right, or easy to counteract or, or something like this, and um this is a fundamental mistake, I think, because these theologies and these ideologies have a logic, right, that they follow, that make a lot of sense to the people participating. Um, and so the Klan's theology, unsurprisingly, was virulently anti-Catholic, that then they told Protestant history, you started with Jesus, and then there were a lot of missing years, and then you hit Martin Luther, and then you kind of move forward, <laughs> right? So they really create this idea that um, Protestantism is the only authentic Christianity, right? That was a part of that. But when they talked about Jesus, they tried to make him into an exclusive figure who would have appreciated the way they shore up white supremacy, which is kind of an interesting move. But that they understood that when they looked at biblical texts, they could find racial ideology in it and support for their white supremacy. Sure. So you have, for example, um, Levit- Leviticus that says that you're supposed to keep your daughters separate from the daughters of foreigners and things like that. Right. I mean, and this is what they would do. They would exactly go to this text and say, we have examples, right, that you're supposed to stay within your groups, right? That uh, they claim that Jesus, even though they admitted he was Jewish, would have been a Klansman because he stood for some sort of ethnic purity, right? Um, so there's this, this kind of way that they understand Protestantism and white supremacy is naturally going together. And they weren't entirely out of bounds for the 1920s either, and the way that other white Protestants are interpreting this, but not as spectacularly maybe as the Klan is, right? Where it was more subtle what they're saying and, and what they were doing. 
Well, and you write in the book, The Gospel According to the Klan, that what they created was a kind of generalized Protestantism that limited the boundaries of tradition. And I'd like to unpack that right. statement. So, so they pulled some things out of Protestantism to make it so that you could apply this to multiple traditions, and yet they also put strong fences around those traditions so that it wasn't an anything-goes. Do, do I have that right? But help us understand what you mean by that. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so they were very conscious that they wanted all Protestants to go to church, and you could go to whichever Protestant church you wanted to. Um, but they tried to create this form of Protestantism that moved away from some of those like doctrinal questions that separate denominations from one another. So that there's kind of a general go to church because that's what you have to do. <laughs> um, but they created a Jesus that was kind of missing some of those complicated pieces that are going to make dominations kind of be in tension with one another, and that they, you know, were kind of missionary in some aspects. But again, it was this idea that we should somehow, or they should somehow, unite Protestantism to get past that fractionalism and to make it something more unified that really, in all honesty, could combat Roman Catholicism, <laughs> right? You know, they're like, oh, look, Catholics have this figured out, right? They stick together. Protestants are squabbling among themselves, so we have to figure out a way to create a theology that works, right? That can't get caught up in those questions about, are you depraved totally, <laughs> right, from the moment on, or are you not, right? Or do you understand emotion differently, or do you do these sorts of things? Um, so that they just kind of try to wash away those essential differences between Protestant denominations. And this is fascinating to me because Protestantism is probably best known for its cry, its rallying cry of sola fide, faith alone. So as long as you have the correct right. belief, you're a member of, of whatever Protestant group we might be talking about. But they, what is going on here is not simply correct belief because a person of the wrong ethnic heritage is precluded, if I'm understanding correctly, from having belongingness, even if they have the correct belief. So there's another level beyond right. just simple belief. Is that correct? Right. Um, and it's because their cosmism is racialized. So they could appreciate that African-Americans were Protestant, right, and support that Protestantism. But they wouldn't include them <laughs> in anything because of the sort of white supremacist piece, right? Um, there are these, like, wild examples in newspapers of where they would show up at black churches, full regalia, and give them Bibles and give them money, right? Because they're like, we support your, your Protestant mission, but we're not okay with anything else. <laughs> Right, so this is kind of interesting. Like we can we can do this kind of missionizing, this Protestant missionizing, but the race factor was always a problem. And this is not just a Southern phenomenon, because in the book you talk about a Pennsylvania clan group that literally gives money to help build a Negro church. Am I correct about that? Yeah, no, you are. I mean, it was very much in the twenties. It was a national movement. I tell people all the time, all forty-eight continental states that you know the clan was super active in Oregon and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Indiana, as well as the South. So it very much was a national movement in a way that I think people don't imagine. There is this kind of way that the Klan is always assumed as Southern, and that's not accurate. But uh, at this moment, they were 
popular everywhere in the U.S., California, right, Texas, uh, and that sometimes their prejudices were more defined by local cultures and who they were nervous about. But overall, they shared this kind of sense of that there was a threat to Protestantism and there's a threat to white people and that you kind of have to always be on guard against that, whether you're in New Jersey or whether you're in Florida. I want to dig in in a moment to that idea of the threat. But on the way to that, I also want to highlight some of the complicating factors about the Klan that you bring up. So a person who has a progressive mindset or a person who is used to sort of late 20th, early 21st century church teaching might think of the Klan solely as a hate group. But you point out, among other things, that some of the Klan groups had in their bylaws that they had to take 10% of all their monies and dedicate it to charitable causes. So the Klan was simultaneously doing good in the community while also spreading these boundaries of hate and these ideas of exclusion in the community. Yeah, I think there's a way we get caught up in this idea that a movement like the Klan in particular is, is just a hate group, right? That they're just out there with racist language, they're out there oppressing people actively, and they're they're always sort of in that hate mode. Um, and I think that's what's so confusing to people when you find out that the Klan is basically tithing <laughs> to benevolent organizations, or um, that they are involved in these social causes and reform, is that hate group moniker sometimes confuses what it's actually happening with some of these groups, right? That there's a way that they're doing things that we wouldn't necessarily categorize as bad, right? But they're doing it under the banner of the Klan. And I think that really throws people off because we kind of want to assume that bad people are bad people all the time. <laughs> and that's just not how it works, right? That humans are really messy and complicated and we do contradictory things. And the, the Klan could imagine that it inherently was a reformist group doing social good when it's clearly that's not all they're doing, right? Because they're also threatening people and burning crosses on lawns and um, writing kind of hateful theology and doing these other things. But I think we have to kind of recognize that that complexity can exist there. Um, and it doesn't help us to just assume that they're terrible, <laughs> right? Like there's, there's a degree to their terribleness, but there are also these other pieces going on that inform this, and I think also means that a group like this could appeal to so many white Americans because they're doing all of these things, not just one of them. And you talk about this in your book, Gospel According to the Klan, this desire for the tidy narrative where the good people are good all the time, the bad people are bad all the time. And we don't just see this complication, this complexity with the Ku Klux Klan. We can see this, I'm talking to you from Chicago, the history of the Black Panthers in Chicago, in addition to being a strong revolutionary group that wanted to change the government, they also fed children and they, they created education programs. Right. We can see this in the modern day in Israel-Palestine, where a group like Hamas has a very revolutionary purpose. Some would declare it a terrorist purpose, but they also do oftentimes humanitarian work on the ground. It is difficult to really to tease out the good that you see when there's also the bad, and that really makes this a complicated thing to discuss, doesn't it? It does. It makes it so hard because I feel like when I go in and talk to audiences about the Klan, almost immediately I have someone who's like, but aren't they bad people? You know, like, that's like the pressing question. Like, let me know 
that they are bad people and then I can kind of move on. And, and part of me is like, yeah, you know, they are kind of bad people, but also they're building orphanages and donating money to churches. And, and there has to be a way for us to get away from those polarizing narratives, I think, if we really want to combat things like white supremacy and hate groups, is that it, it does us no favors to paint people as either bad or good inherently, but to really think about, like, what is happening here and why is this happening? And that these movements have to have more than hate to kind of stick together and work. And, and I think that's the really hard piece to wrap our heads around. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's appeal to Protestant America from 1915 to 1930. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's appeal to Protestant America from 1915 to 1930. So one of the factors that leads to the rise of this second wave of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 is a piece of material culture, a film made by D.W. Griffith called Birth of a Nation. And I'd like to start there by kind of asking you about how this film played into this reimagining of the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. So this film, which is based on a terrible book, like a terrible book to read, I never recommend anybody read it. I only read it because I had to. Basically paint the Klan as the saviors of the South, right? So that enfranchised, excuse me, African Americans become the biggest threat to white womanhood, and then the impressive Klansmen, right, in their uniforms and their horses and their burning crosses, you know, save the day, right, save the South. And so this movie is what we would kind of call in modern moment a blockbuster, that it has mass appeal. And one of the people that it really appeals to you is Joseph Simmons, um, who is that founder of the Klan, who, you know, had kind of been a joiner, right? He's a guy that joins fraternities and joins the Masons and this other kind of thing, was a former Methodist minister, um, who sees this on screen and just has this kind of aha moment, right, where he's like, oh, like, this is the thing we need to pay attention to, right? Like, this is kind of what I was imagining. And so goes to work to recreate the Klan but kind of separate from the origins of the Reconstruction Klan, where he really wants it to look different, right? To get past that kind of vigilantism and violence and be more respectable <laughs> in some sort of way. So he basically takes ideas and sort of the images of Klansmen from the movie and applies them directly to the order in this kind of lovely way that, you know, fantasy and real life often collide and inform one another in, in very interesting ways. And so he takes ideas from this and runs with it, right? And then creates this elaborate 
bureaucratic order <laughs> that is very hierarchical and um, kind of has a sense of what it's supposed to do to save both Protestantism and then save the nation, too, right? Like these dual purposes that he has there as this idea about what will work. So that our listeners are clear, so Nathan Bedford Forrest's clan that arises in the Reconstruction, they took their symbolism from kind of spooks and ghosts and haints. The, de- mm-hmm. the, the design was to try and kind of scare people away from the ballot box, mostly. Then this gets turned into a novel, The, the, the Klansman, A Romance mm-hmm. of the South. And then D.W. Griffith turns this novel into the birth of a nation, a <laughs> into a movie. And then, then Simmons, this man, uh, William Simmons, sees Birth of a Nation and he he begins to then reimagine this iconography. And you say he takes sick in his bed and he spends his convalescing time literally sketching out the organization, but right. but also the way that the clan would sort of look and feel. And so he recreates mm-hmm. some of the images of this movie it back into real life. Back into real life, yes. And he takes directly what he sees on screen and then pulls it into this order, right? So Knights was in the title, the Reconstruction Clan, but he really, after seeing these Klansmen on horses in this movie, really likes the idea of pushing forth with this Christian knighthood idea, right? Pushing forth with this idea that society is in peril and white supremacy is imperiled, right? And that things could change instantly and, and tries to really make the 1920s Klan into a respectable order, that, like, anyone would want to join, right? He really wants to kind of get rid of some of that baggage, get rid of some of the explicit kind of ways that terror tactics were used by the Reconstruction Klan and reformat this into something that's more middle class, more respectable, has broader appeal, right? And and part of his attempt is to kind of soften this image (laughs) without entirely softening it, right? Like, so that... It's a kinder, gentler clan, but also there's still this racism and, and violence and, and these other pieces of it, but we're going to kind of smooth it over somehow, right, and and make it seem not as threatening while also still wanting to threaten people. Well, and, and this it needs to be pointed out that this second wave of the clan began and grew out of the Knights of Mary Fagan, which were gathered around a lynching of a Jewish man. And so their right. violence is inherent in the reconception of this, but I, I love love what you say, that there's an attempt to smooth that over and make it middle class and acceptable, kind of like belonging to an Elks Lodge, something like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, that this is just, you know, like a thing where you have picnics and parades, while you also burn crosses on people's yards and try to chase them out of town, right? Like, that. this kind of, these things exist simultaneously. And so that Simmons is never fully able to get rid of violence because the client is so embedded in violence. He just, it, it doesn't work. Well, one of the things that struck me about this was the attention that was paid to the visual and the graphic aspect of this. So you you highlight that this is not just something coming out of film, Birth of a Nation, but there's also the print, the the broadsheets and the newsletters, and there's material culture. So there's there's costuming, there's there's the the fiery cross that they march up onto Stone Mountain and they burn from the top of Stone Mountain. So there's these visual aspects. Mm-hmm. It struck me 
just the parallel, you know, if we look just a few years later in Germany, we see a similar graphic parallel with the rise of Nazi Germany. And what is it uh-huh. ab- about these movements that have hatred and violence at their center, realizing in the middle of, in, in the early and mid 20th century, how important the graphic aspect is, the visual aspect is? That, that struck me as a very odd parallel, but it, we see so many movements that really move to the visual as, as we ourselves as a culture are moving to the visual. No, I think it's one of these where they realized early on that you had to create something that gave uniformity, but also something that would draw attention, right? Like that there had to be a way to combine both of those and to really play up those material aspects because it makes it essentially more concrete, right? There are physical objects. There are rituals that you participate in where you move your body, right? That you interact with these symbols in their, like, concrete object form, right? Um, that, that really makes it work and makes and gives you the kind of shorthand to understand things, too, right? That when Klansmen see the Klansmen's robe, they, they understand instantly that here are all the things to stand for, right? Because of the symbols that they've placed on it and the effort that they've put forth and these sorts of things. So that they just realize that it's very effective, both to kind of bring community together and give them a language and a material form to communicate, but also in this kind of marketing impulse. <laughs> you know, that I, I tell people all the time that the clan was very clear on what their brand was before we started talking about brand, right? That they were great at public relations and they were great at creating these things and trying to create a platform that was instantly obvious but also spectacular and drew attention. That they were able to play on those things and kind of adapt to those new technologies in a way that we kind of assume sometimes that these groups aren't good at, even though they continually are. You know, they're the kind of the first to sort of say, oh, like this technology makes sense to me to use it this way and can employ it, right, Um, and be very sophisticated about it too. Well, and I I mentioned a moment ago or I suggested a moment ago that they were poaching this somehow from more above-board fraternal organizations like the Elks and, Mm -hmm. and those. But let's be honest about the root of this. Where they're really poaching this from is Christian symbolism, isn't it? It's, it's ritual Uh and liturgy. They're, they're, they're poaching Christian worship. Oh yeah. And, and understanding it explicitly that this is something that works. And if it works there, <laughs> why won't it work somewhere else, right? I mean, and so I think this is the, the piece that we often miss out on when we think about hate groups is that they're so savvy at pulling together older forms that work and blending them with newer forms, right? And understanding the importance of something like ritual to make people members of something and to build together identity and to do this, right? And they're able to look at Protestant tradition and see that, right? And and know that there's an emotional piece of this and there's a bodily piece and then there's the, the habits, right, that you're then able to develop in people's minds and their feelings and their bodies that then lend itself to other things too. So that they're able to understand this and use this because they're already a part of that system, right? And then they're able to take the system and apply it in a different context, in a way that's sophisticated and in a way that has mass appeal, 
And it's almost because the Christian rhythms, these bodily rhythms, these worshiping rhythms were so ubiquitous in American culture that the Klan was able to come in and sort of co-opt them and use them now to a new purpose. So it's like the momentum was there and they just redirected it. Do I have that right? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, and this is and this is the piece, right? Is that like social movements don't come out of nowhere, right? Like they don't just suddenly appear fully formed. That they very much are based on things that are already a part of cultures that they can amplify or they can tweak, right? So that there is already a familiar language that they were all participating in that they're then able to take pieces of and create new things or create things that are more hodgepodge, right? but are still familiar enough that we can grasp onto in some sort of way. And that they take that stuff out of the mainstream and amplify it, right? Or recycle it or use it for a different purpose in some kind of way that we can kind of see that logic because we're already a part of a larger cultural system, right? And that this is is what works and this is something that we can pull on. And it's often elements from the mainstream that either appear so natural to us that we can't notice them, (laughs) or they've been previously understated in a way, but they're always kind of there. And so the clan is able to say, we can make this ritual work because our members are already versed in Protestantism in some sort of way, right? Or they're already versed in costumes and other fraternities. (laughs) Or they're already versed in a sort of sense of masculinity that we can then build upon, right, to, to further their aims. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's appeal to Protestant America from 1915 to 1930. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. We've talked to her before about her book, Sexism Ed, Essays of Gender and Labor in Academia. Today, we're discussing her recent book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America from 1915 to 1930. Well, in this conversation, we've talked about the ways in which Protestant America of the 19-teens really laid out the possibility of a reimagining of Protestantism into a nationalized, very exclusive, very racialized product that became the Ku Klux Klan. I am going to draw some parallels now to where we are in our present moment, because if we think about 
what the Klan was trying to do in 1915. It was trying to hearken back to an earlier day that it thought embodied the greatness of America. And we can see now that we're having similar, in our own uh, 2000 teens, we're having a similar impulse to try and make America great again. And I'm just interested in what parallels, Dr. Baker, you see between the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915, the second wave of the Klan, and the modern nationalist and, in many ways, jingoist moment that we're in right now. Yeah, it's weird for me. As a historian, I tend to like to analyze things that happened in the past um, and not live through them in a certain way. So I kind of joke in the gallows humor sort of way that I feel like we're living through my book, and that makes me deeply unhappy. So for me, I think there are a lot of obvious parallels from anti-immigrant rhetoric and attempts to enforce boundaries as a way to protect some sort of uh, American national body, if that even means trying to create a wall, right, a literal wall to do this. But you can see it in this kind of claim that America, as we currently stand, is somehow broken, right, or something has gone terribly awry, and that the only thing we can do is go back to a previous period, right? And here, I think, in our current moment, too, our current political moment, that the place we want to go back to is a place of, like, secure white political and cultural dominance, right? That there is this way in which the Make America Great very much echoes the sentiments of um, Klan leaders who were really afraid that America wasn't great and that there had been a previous greatness that we were losing as American society became more multicultural, uh, more fractious in some way, because not everyone agreed with um, political systems, this sort of thing. So you see these echoes and resonances very much here. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about how Trump's rhetoric leading just in the presidential campaign very much echoed the language of someone like H.W. Evans, who was an imperial wizard of the Klan, who, you know, pretty much compared immigrants to a dragon, a dragon vomiting, right? That immigrants are sort of dragon that are also kind of gross and bodily and these sorts of things. This is very bizarre analogy that he used. But this kind of language, right, this fear of contagion, this fear of violence and these sorts of things, even if these aren't based on statistics or facts or something like this, right, but it's very much conjuring of the story, still disturbing to me in lots of ways about the way we come to narrate things, right, takes on such crucial importance because of the erasures, often violent erasures, that we can, can ignore, right, or that we can underplay or that those somehow become activist histories, <laughs> right, rather than this is the way things work out, right, um, in, in some sort of way. So it is, it is one of those where I'm constantly kind of paying attention to our current political moment and what the narratives are that people are drawn to, right, and, and what those narratives do or don't do, and constantly how exclusive they are, right, in nature. As we draw to a close, I want to acknowledge that some of my listeners will be strongly identifying with the Trump administration, with the idea of Make America Great Again, with this idea that, yes, we need to protect our borders and there is a threat. So I want to acknowledge that, and I, I don't want to diminish that position or caricature that position. It's clear, Kelly J. Baker, that you do not share that position. So I wonder, in this, in this, sort of, in this final part of our conversation, how would you speak across that divide? What would you say from what you have learned in writing this book, The Gospel According to the Klan, to someone who is 
wedded to or is still working with the idea that America needs to be made great again, that we need to secure our borders, that there is a threat in our midst. How would you speak to them in this political moment? Yeah, so I don't want to trivialize that position. I want to understand it, right? Um, just kind of the impulse behind gospel according to Klan in a lot of ways is to kind of understand how this appeals and, and why it might appeal. And, I mean, and one of the things that I think about a lot with this is, again, it's about this kind of story we tell, right? So there's one story you can tell about America in which America was great at one moment and now it's not. There's another story that I think I would tell about how America is great now in some ways because of diversity, because of the people that we try to include, because of these sorts of things. And I think the interesting question is how we get that story that I'm a part of to sync up with this other story, right? Like how how can we talk across those in, in some sort of way without like devolving into some sort of shouting match, <laughs> Right, um, where I get painted as some sort of terrible liberal who doesn't understand threats, right, or or something like this. And so I don't I don't have a good answer. I mean, part of what I do when I hear this kind of stuff is I'm like, well, what what is the problem, right? Like, what? How are we not great now, right? Like, what is it about now that's a problem, right? And and what period of American history do you think that we didn't have some of these problems? <laughs> There's a historian in me that's like. You know, if we look back at previous periods, they're not so great either, you know, for lots of reasons. And, and like, what, what are we doing this for, right? And what kind of political goals they are. And this means that most often people don't want to talk to me because it's not a lot of fun when someone's going to analyze and push back at you <laughs> in this way. But, I mean, it is kind of this, this fascinating piece for me about their competing versions of the American story that we're laboring under, and there aren't just two, right? There is a multiplicity, and, and it's a question of, can you ever resolve those? And, and increasingly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a way to make those sync up in a way that's compelling or convincing without all of us having to agree to seed ground, right, in some sort of way about what guides us or how this might be understood from another perspective or what we might be missing because we inhabit a certain type of body, right? Or um, what life is really like for trans folks under the current administration, right? Um, and how painful and terrible that must be, right? And how this doesn't probably feel great. So part of me wants to do kind of a humanizing impulse here to think about what greatness might mean for certain people and the consequences that it has for so many but it's still hard, right? As you can tell, as I kind of ramble through this answer, I don't have a good handle on what to do, except for a lot of times to point to historical parallels with movements that maybe we don't want to be associated with and our rhetoric associated with in some sort of way. Well, Dr. Kelly J. Baker, it is always such a delight to talk to you. This book was jaw-dropping. It was eye-opening. And I am so thankful that you took some time to talk to us about it. I, I hope that you keep writing books because I want to keep having you back on the show because every time that we get a chance to talk, I learn something. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that you had the time today. Thank you again for being with us today. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for the, the very kind words. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, 
part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.